Hello, sports fans, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And welcome to Tour Divide Race Week. Since it is Tour Divide Week, we've got a special guest for you today. John Stamstead is on the podcast to talk to us about all things Tour Divide. We're talking about the history, we're talking about the rules, and we're talking about the ethos, and this does pick up our conversation that we've been having about the rules as they pertain to self-supported bikepack racing and events just like the Tour Divide. If you have been living under a rock for quite some time, John Stamstead is an absolute legend in our sport. He first completed the Tour Divide route, which at that time was just called the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route, and it started at the American-Canada border and went down to the American-Mexico border. It has changed and adapted and evolved over the years, and now we have the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route and the Tour Divide Race Route, uh, which are very similar in many respects. But back in 1999, we just had the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route, and he set an FKT doing an ITT back in 1999 and set a new FKT or fastest known time of 18 days and five hours, a time which I believe stood up for about five years until the first run of the Tour Divide race, at which point it was taken down. In 2000, a year later, John Stamstead was inducted into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. John has been a member of our community and a figurehead in mountain bike racing for decades. He has been involved not only in the racing aspect, but in the rules and ethos aspect of this sport. And he has a lot to offer whenever it comes to filling in some of those gaps in our understanding of the sport being new to it. So this was an awesome opportunity to have John come on the podcast uh, and educate us on the spirit and the ethics and the rules and the ethos of these races. And it's very timely now that we have the Tour Divide race going on as we speak. John does a pretty good job of introducing himself at the beginning of today's episode, so I will leave the rest to him. But before we get to today's episode, let's take a moment to thank the people that made it possible, starting with our latest patron, Andrew Holt. Thank you for signing up as our latest and greatest Patreon. Patreon is the best way to support the Bikes for Death podcast. It lets us know that we got a little bit of operating money to uh, help produce these shows every single month. And if you would like to join Andrew, you can over at patreon.com forward slash bikes for death. Today's episode is also brought to us by Athletic Greens. I started using them because if you've noticed, food options have become increasingly faster and less healthy. Eating healthy these days can actually be kind of challenging. It can be a little bit expensive. It can be harder to find good and healthy options. And it can be harder to get the nutrients and the veggies that your body needs. So for me, I found that Athletic Greens is a great solution to help manage a healthy diet with 
One delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptions to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I take mine every morning in about 12 ounces of cold water. And it's a great way to start the day knowing that I gave my body something really good to get the engine going. Now, to make this easy, and we want to make it easy, if you'd like to try Athletic Greens, they are going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash bikes or death again. That is athleticgreens.com forward slash bikes or death to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate in daily nutritional insurance. Today's episode is also brought to us by Quadlock. And I got my friend Ben Moore here all the way from the UK to tell us some of the things he likes about Quadlock. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick. I want to ask you, man. So, I mean, downhill mountain biking, that's serious. And one thing people are always concerned about that I hear is, you know, is your phone safe while using it on a bike in that manner? I've never had an issue. What about you? That is probably, as you say, the most popular question I get asked when it comes to this specific product. I crash a lot and we were just chatting about it. So two days ago, I had a big one. I was due a big crash. I haven't had a crash like this sort of size in a long time. Um, let's just say over the bars high speed. I didn't get knocked out on this one. I thought I should have been. Um, I turn around, the bike's a bit of a mess and there's the phone. It's still on the bars. And I, the only people that saw it were these four random guys that were in the forest that day. And we were joking about it, that the phone is still on the bike. And this is a prime example of how strong this product is. I mean, I, I race all of these downhill races and for a lot of them, I'll just stick my phone on, even if it's in a shanty town in South America with you know all the steps and jumping off of people's houses, and the phone has never come off. I put my hand on my heart and say it's never come off. It's incredible. And that's why, obviously, at the end of the day, an iPhone's not cheap, as you know. You don't want to stick a thousand bucks worth of iPhone on your bars and find that it's pinged off after a couple of bumps. So I have a huge amount of faith that, yeah, I'm prepared to put money where my mouth is and have my iPhone there. I think your money is safe. I mean, I, I've been using Quadlog for a long time and never had an issue. Well, listen, dude, if people want to follow along some of your racing and what you got going on, where can people uh, follow you at? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, over the years, I've done a lot on Facebook. So every race I do, you end up with a race run on Facebook and it's normally a minute or two long. So it's not, you know, it doesn't ever get too boring for the viewers. So yeah, find us on Facebook. Um, also got an Instagram and then uh, I'm flicking my way through that as uh, as time goes on. All right. Sounds good, man. Well, thanks for coming on and chatting Quadlock with us today. Thanks for having me, Patrick. All the best. All right. Take care, buddy. Cheers. All right, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for sticking with us through the ads. The bills are paid and now it is time to have some fun. Before we get to the episode, though, real quick, let's just check in on Tour Divide. So I'm going to refresh my screen real quick. And Sofian is currently winning. He's been winning uh, ever since they started about five days and two hours ago. Uh, a couple notes on today's race for Dot Watchers. 
I've always been surprised by how few people know um, how to actually watch the dots. So if you're new to dot watching, there's a great website called trackleaders.com. And if you go to their main page and just scroll down, you'll see a link for the 2022 Tour Divide. And there you can see all the dots of everybody who's participating in this year's race. At the pointy end of the race, you'll see Sofian Sahili, who is right behind, you'll see another dot, MH, which is in purple. That's for Mike Hall. And that is the Tour Divide record, the fastest known time on this route. Now, a couple interesting things about this dot. First off, it's worth noting that the actual record for this race is not an option this year due to uh, reroutes that were caused by um, ongoing fires. So the official route and an FKT are not an option this year, but They've thrown Mike Hall's dot up there just to give, give us an idea of how the racers are doing in comparison to his fastest known time. And you'll see Sofian is probably about 40-ish miles behind that dot, and he's maintained that gap for a little while now. What's really made this impressive is that the conditions on the divide this year are pretty tough. There's still a lot of snow on the ground. As I mentioned, they're going to be getting into fire as they go on. Um, and so these are pretty tough conditions. And the fact that Sofian is that close to Mike Hall's record is, is pretty impressive. Uh, actually, it's really impressive. And I, I'm wondering, uh, just as a dot watcher and a fan, if Sofian has done himself a favor. And not just Sofian. We got Nate Ginston, Manu, Catrice. Sorry, I get that one wrong. We got Josh Ibbett. And uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot of folks that are out there uh, pushing pushing the pace for sure. Uh, Sofian is in the lead, which is why I'm kind of focusing on him. But but these, these racers that could go out fast, it seems that they were able to avoid some of the really cold, some of the snow that I'm seeing some of the other racers run into just through following their Instagram. So yeah, it's it's quite the race as it is every year. There is something absolutely special about the Tour Divide. It's kind of like the Wimbledon of yeah i'm a tennis player i'm trying to think of another sport super bowl that's that's a sport that people watch football uh it's kind of like the super bowl of our sport you know uh, no matter what controversy is going on in the background it's hard not to get excited and get into these dots and see what these folks are going through all right well that's it enough dot watch and talk but if you're not watching this year's tour divide hop on track leaders and check it out and then cross reference that with their instagram accounts to get some behind the scenes action and it's 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 a good time one bike packing nerd to another all right everyone well like i said we have a great guest today so let's not delay but first let's have miles arbor kick it off with the bikes are death theme song you load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Oh, death. 
I mean, with the tour divide coming up, I thought we could kind of go through kind of your history and, and talk about, you know, the history of the tour divide. And then kind of as we set that stage, especially with the tour divide coming up, that we can get into some of the rules and, and stuff. Does that sound like a pretty good format for you? Yeah, that's great. I don't even feel like, you know, dwelling on the, the rules at all. I'm kind of so frustrated by the overall, you know, discussion of the whole topic. Yeah, it's really frustrating that people can't discuss something rationally. Like, there's just no reason that this shouldn't be just a super normal discussion. And it just isn't online. It's just crazy the vitriol that is being thrown in different directions. I'm disappointed in the community, I'd have to say. Couldn't say it better myself, and I appreciate your perspective on that. It's why I personally value having a podcast and being able to talk to people one-on-one. It goes beyond bikepacking for me, just at its core. I think that social media is doing more damage to the way that we interact as humans. I think that it's putting up barriers and, and we're not we're not communicating. We're not communicating effectively. We're not communicating clearly. We're not listening to other people's ideas or points of view and, and um, understanding those. You know, we're just reading a statement on the internet and then we're reacting to it and then somebody reacts to that and then we have to react back. And it, it does feel like it doesn't really get anywhere. You know, on many levels, as a newcomer, uh, somewhat to the sport, I don't feel qualified really to um, lead the conversations around rules and uh, especially the history of the sport and stuff. But I am excited to have a platform to be able to share other people's points of views. And hopefully we can all be edified by other people's perspectives. I know that while it is frustrating, you you do have some thoughts on it, I assume. <laughs> right, right. No, I was so impressed with, uh, you know, the discussion with uh, Sofian when you had him on, like that was just, a, that was a great just conversation, you know, about the rules. And, you know, that's why it's like, well, why, why can't everybody be more, you know, in line with, with that? It's just, it's surprised to me. What I liked about what Sofian did, did was he, you know, he, he has ideas, he has thoughts, he has feelings and his own perspectives, but then it's like, well, what should we do about this? He's like, I don't know. You know, he did. And, and that's okay not to know, but I think, it's the honest answer. Right. And I think what we're the value in is, is just being able to talk about it without bias or um, having, you know, some ulterior motive. But as we grow as a sport, it's obvious that these conversations are going to continue to come up. And uh, I think that unless we want some outside organization coming in and, and taking over, I think it's important to listen to people like you and to, and Sofian and Lael and, and anybody else who is a, a member of the community that can offer, you know, their, their perspective, people who are in this community, people who help build bikepacking to what it is today. And really there's probably very few people who are more qualified to talk about it than you are. So I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. I appreciate you um, having me on. It's an honor to be on your podcast for sure. Oh man. It's an honor to have you. I'm uh, I'm a little nervous, but we'll get over it. <laughs> so for people who don't know you, can you uh, give us, you know, introduce yourself, let the audience know who you are and some of your background specifically as it relates to ultra endurance cycling? Yeah. Um, so my name is John Stamstad. And I 
I started riding a bike 35 years ago. I think the, my first experience biking was uh, I did a bike tour out to Colorado with a friend of mine from Wisconsin. And I found that I really enjoyed being on my bike all day. And I had heard about these long distance races. So I entered one, the bike across Missouri, which was St. Louis to Kansas City and back 540 miles uh, on the road, very hilly road riding. And I did that and I did well. And I thought, you know, and I loved it. So I thought I'd apply myself to that. And then well, the reason I did the, the Missouri race is somebody told me, oh, that's the hardest one, you know, that, that there is. And then so I just kept looking for, right, what event, claim, you know, bills themselves as, you know, the hardest. And so I sought those out. And then that, you know, just mountain biking, you know, that was the mid 80s. And then so mountain biking was kind of coming along. And I did Montezuma's Revenge, which... I think was the first 24-hour solo mountain bike race out in Colorado, 87, 88, somewhere, you know, in there. And the off-road was just so much more fun than riding around cornfields in the Midwest. So I just morphed into that and just loved it passionately. Just I loved to ride my bike, loved to push the limits. I did a race up in Alaska called the Sport which is on parts of the Iditarod Trail of varying lengths. So I did that about 10 or 11 times. Did a race across Australia, uh, across the continent. It was an off-road stage race. And just have gone to wherever the fun you know, events have led and you know, was part of, with a group of people, the, the evolution of bikepacking and off-road uh, distance racing. The uh, one you mentioned in the Outback sounded particularly interesting to me. That was in 1992. So I was curious about, I mean, in 1992, was that a self-supported bikepacking trip? You said it was a stage race. So would you just carry your own stuff in between stages and resupply? Like, how did that work? Well, so it started out as fully supported. So there was a caravan of vehicles. We had to, you know, camp each night there was no options like there's nothing in the outback but then your camping gear would be you know put on one of the vans or trucks and then taken to the next stopping point we were doing i think it was like you know dawn to an hour before dusk or something so basically it was 14 hours a day which it was yeah it started it was people from all over the racers from all over the world and i knew that it would be an adventure because i just didn't think you know having a race across australia I didn't think it would go as planned. Like the first, and it had never been biked across before through the, through the center. And if you, you know, read, you know, some history on Australia, the first people who tried to drive across Australia all died. There is, it's like a thousand kilometers with no services. It's really forbidding terrain, or at least, you know, was back then. Probably slightly more civilized now. So the race did not go as planned. I actually got kicked out of the race at the halfway point for defamation of character of the race director, because I called him a liar and he was a liar, <laughs> which was very bizarre. I was in first place every single day of the race and up until that point. And then so he kicked me out of the race. All but two people quit in protest or left because you can't really have a, a real race and kick the first place person out of it. 
So then, it, well, I wasn't just kicked out, but I was left stranded in Alice Springs. Like my stuff was removed off the truck and I was just left there along with the other people who dropped out. So I called up my sponsor at the time, which was Bridgestone Bicycles. I called Grant Peterson, told him, hey, Grant, I know you spent a lot of money to send me over to this, you know, cool race in Australia. And I was doing really well, you know, but now I got kicked out and, well, I need you to send me some money so we can buy a vehicle to, you know, support us the rest of the way, you know, across. Because we had my friend Henry and I had two people to crew for us. So Grant was like, John, that's great. Just make it a good story. Like that was, I just really thought that was, you know, an important lesson from him. Like he was a good teacher. So we did. We, but again, you can't, you can't just go across the second half of Australia. We had a 55-gallon drum of gas in the van, quarts of oil. So then, yeah, the second half, my friend Henry and I, we rode kind of race across America style, just nonstop, as many hours a day as we you know, physically could, which is that was the first time that I'd ever done that. I guess it was we did seven days you know, as, as nonstop as we could. And I think the last three days we did 21 and a half, 22 and a half, and then 27 hours to the finish after 20 some days of racing. Yeah. That's gotta be a wild experience. I interviewed, um, I don't know if you know, Kate and Henley Phillips, but she ran across Outback, the Australian Outback, and he supported her with a bicycle. So he carried all of the gear that they needed, all the water, and it was a really neat uh, feat that they they accomplished. But that was back in 1992. That's what really surprised me is that, I don't know, in many ways, as I've been like learning about you and researching this, a lot of this stuff has been going on a long time, you know, I mean, in terms of like media crew and sponsors and, you know, long distance bike bike racing and stuff. And, and you've really been there and witnessed uh, the progression. You've left off a couple things on your bio. So in 1999, you did a run at the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route, did it in 18 days and five hours, which previous to that, the fastest time was six weeks, I believe. And then in 2000, you were inducted into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. So, I mean, the importance of that is is to highlight, again, that, that you have been a member of, of the community, you've been a member of the sport, and you've watched it grow, and you've been a part of, a big part of the progression of the sport, and you're still an active member of the community. And so, just for people who don't know you, hopefully that, you know, lends to your credentials. With the Tour Divide, this episode is going to come out on Wednesday, and the Tour Divide is kicking off on Friday, so this is fairly timely. The Tour Divide is is the pinnacle bikepacking race. I think it's considered by everybody to be the the birth of solo self-supported uh, bikepack racing. But, you know, it's interesting. I don't know much about how the route was actually developed. It was developed in 1998. You were out there racing it in 1999. Do you know the story of how that route was actually developed? And, it, and we should say it was made by uh, Adventure Cycling Association. Yeah, so Mac McCoy of Adventure Cycling Association is the one who put it together. And I mean, he spent years doing it. I'm not sure exactly how many, but like it took him years. Like that's a putting together a, you know, 2,500, 2,700 mile now, you know, route. 
that is such a monumental project. And, you know, it was ahead of its time. Like he put together a bikepacking route before bikepacking was a thing. Like people just weren't really doing it. Well, that's one of my questions is, is, and I'm curious, like, I assume, or I'm wondering, was the original intention for it to be a, a route that people would maybe tour or do you know what the, the, yes. the purpose of, yeah. Yeah. So that was, you know, one of the ACAs, you know, just one of their touring routes, but, you know, obviously off-road or as, as off-road as it could be, but still like, you know, trying to stay within range of resupply places, you know, like you know, keeping that in mind so that people could do it on their own. Yeah. It's just funny to think about, or maybe not funny, but it's really impressive to think about. I mean, we have all these tools and technologies in place that make it a lot easier to create routes. And I'm trying to picture how he did it. I'm wondering if he drove his car, rode his bike, what resources they use to, um, to put it all together. But it's, uh, yeah, it's really, it's an impressive route and impressive feat that they were able to to put together yeah it's fairly audacious you know of a plan just because there was no business plan that said oh if you do this it's guaranteed you know to be a hit like it really wasn't you know mountain biking you know was definitely a thing but yeah i really applaud his his effort and tenacity to make that happen well, you would be able to speak to this, but I mean, in 1992, you did the race across the Outback, 3,500 miles. And in 1999 or 1998, they they came out with the Great Divide mountain bike route. I mean, just in general, around that time period, how many of these longer races, these longer routes were even available? How cutting edge was this, essentially? Well, it's kind of funny. When I started doing these, I would do almost literally every you know, ultra race during the year. And then now there are some states where no human could, could do all, all of the bikepacking events in a single state. So the growth has just been exponential. But back then there was, there are a lot of 24 hour races, you know, the relay and the, and the, the solos. There was the, I did a sport in Alaska that became kind of a borderline backpacking event in I think 1997 it was. It started as just a 200-kilometer event, but then in 97, they they made a new route and did the first 350 miles of the Iditarod Trail. That was pretty hardcore for the time. It just wasn't as we consider bikepacking in that there aren't m- m- many services out there, so the race would fly in drop bags. So you could get resupplied once a day you know, kind of thing. You could hit, you know, a checkpoint and grab some stuff because there's there's nothing out there, you know. There's two small villages the entire way. Uh, and then I did the divide in 99. And I had heard about it for a few years, so I had kind of planned on it and was just waiting for it, you know, to be finished. Uh, Drew Walker is the first person that I know of who wrote it. He did it in 98, and he did it, he did it just, the maps weren't completely done. So he did, you know, like 90% of it. But I think the, can't remember if it was the north or the south that wasn't finished. But so he just kind of, you know, finished it off. But he was the first one out there, you know, kind of attempting to do it. And then Mike Kuriak did the Grand Loop race out in uh, Colorado. And 
like that might be, I was talking to him about that recently. And so that is probably the first, what we could, would consider bike packing by today's standards. That was a self-supported, I think it was roughly a 300 mile uh, loop. What was that one called again? The Grand Loop. The Grand Loop. I never heard of it. That's fascinating. And it was in Colorado? Yeah. Um, like, you know, Grand Junction area. The yeah, okay. Western Slope. No, I feel like I should know that. So that is considered to be possibly the first ever solo self-supported bikepacking event. And then, but what really changed it was when Mike organized a race on the Great Divide mountain bike route that, you know, became the, the Tour Divide in, I believe that was 04. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, and he set the record. He broke my record in 04. And I think that's really when bikepacking became a, a thing. It was the Tour Divide race. People knew of that. They, it started to get coverage, you know, in the, in the media. And the concept of bikepacking started to take off. Even though that event didn't really explode in popularity because it's so hard. Like, it's just so long and it's so challenging. But people loved the idea. I think they looked at the, the extreme example, thought that that was awesome, and then people started you know, doing it on a smaller scale. But also, the, the other key development, and this is just timing in life and how things hit a tipping point, the gear started changing. And the gear got so much better, and then GPSs came out, and like that changed the entire universe. Like the difference between navigating poor quality maps, you know, back around the, you know, two thousand ish, to following a breadcrumb, it's just night and day. You know, approachability of new people coming into the sport. You know, you didn't need local knowledge. You could go to a, you know, a place, have somebody's route. And you know that you're going to have a, a good experience. And then the weight of all the gear uh, dropped by half. You know, from my, the kit that I use now to what I used in 99, across the board, basically everything weighs half. I'd love to hear about not only your, your kit and your gear, like what that looked like in 1999, but it'd also be interesting to, to know, I mean, where were we at in the evolution of, of bikepacking? What kind of were like? Were you on an ITT? What rules, if any, were in place when you went out there? Or were you just kind of doing your own thing? Well, you know that's interesting, and I can't remember like where the conversation started for the first like record. Maybe ultra runners were doing it. I remember, you know, I had conversations with Buzz Burrell, who started Fastest Known Time. We talked about some of these, like how we would differentiate. And just acknowledge people's marks. Like, how do you, somebody goes, goes out and does something, how should we acknowledge that? And then once people start doing it, all right, we have to have some loose rules. So, of course, like, it started with none except do cover every inch of the route under your own power, which still today, like, uh, that's a good basic, you know, rule. And Kyriak, you know, came up with, you know, his slogan, do it all yourself. And it's still good today. If you just do everything yourself, you aren't going to have any issues. But with popularity, it adds a layer. But So when we started doing these, the etiquette was similar to the sport of climbing. 
you would contact the current record holder, ask them, you know, get the details on how, you know, they did their attempt and then declare to that person, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And here's how I'm going to, to do it. And it might be different, like say somebody did it fully supported and you were going to do it either, either self-supported or, you know, unsupported. So you just kind of declare how you were going to do it. And then it was, you know, a bit of a gentleman's agreement. In order to claim a course or route record, you had to do it in a manner that was as hard or harder than the previous record. If you were going to say that you beat somebody else's record, you could still do it and just not make any claims. But So does that include conditions? No. Only okay. things that are under you know human control. Gotcha. Although um, I w- the one argument there would be like deserts, you know, winter or summer, you know, desert attempts. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it has to be, you know, if somebody sets a desert mark in the dead of summer, you can't go in the winter, do it and say that you beat their record. You would just, you would have a winter mark that other person would have a summer mark. So really just very logical stuff. And I think today's athletes, you know, would be well to take some hints from that tradition. The other part that I like about that approach is you're honoring the people who have come before you. You know, if you're going to try and break a record, I just think it's good to acknowledge, you know, the person who you've bettered, you know, acknowledge their experience. And even just writing about it, you know, claim your record, but say, you know, and the mark that I, you know, bested was set by so-and-so. They did it this time under these conditions or, you know, the details. And it's just a, I think it's just an honorable way to go about that. It's courteous. Do you see people currently, like, how have we detracted from that? How have we gotten away from that as a community? Well, I think, you know, the way that rules evolve, and like for most of these, you know, some people think that these rules are new. They're, they're really not. In terms of the supported versus self-supported, I was having those discussions when I started trail running what, in 2001 or so. And I remember having discussions with runners who, because in, in running, there's the tradition to have do supported attempts and have pacers with you because that's how the running races go. You usually, at night, you know, you usually have a pacer run with you. And in cycling, you know, we don't do that. But the runners didn't consider that to be support and even made like the, the same claims that we're hearing today. Whereas I would say, well, a pacer is, if nothing else, it's at least emotional support. And, you know, the argument of, well, some people do better alone. You know, some people do better not with a person next to them. So how can you say which one is better? And those things are true. And that's part of the subtleties of this sport. But it's not even. Doing it completely alone is is not even with somebody who has a crew with them, regardless of the amount of tangible things they're they're doing. It's just provably different. You know, it's not the same equality of opportunity, I think. You know, I think this kind of highlights one of the one of the issues is that, you know, as bikepacking grows and it is growing, brings in a lot of people, a lot of ideas and opinions, but we might lose the origins and the spirit of the race. But 
you know, I, I kind of get it because it's, it's a little bit messy, right? Like we don't have an organizing body. There's not one set of rules that governs every single race and different races can have different rules and all this stuff. And, and I wonder if part of it is, is coming from just confusion and different rules and stuff, you know? And like, I, I'm, I'm curious what would be a good solution because I assume none of us want a governing body like the UCI to come in and, and regulate everything. But in my mind, instead of that happening, I feel like there should be some kind of ground rules, you know, that, that could be applied across the board possibly. But I'm more interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's the first rule of bikepacking is that there are no rules. And if somebody tells you that you're doing bikepacking wrong, they probably don't know the spirit of what bikepacking is about. I see the discussions, you know, online about uh, if you have panniers, if your bike has panniers, then you're not, then you're touring, you're not bikepacking. And I just want to gouge my eyes out, you know, with that kind of debate. It's just, if you're riding your bike for transportation from point A to point B, and you're enjoying yourself, you're bikepacking. That's the sport. I think it... Growing pains are certainly normal, and especially money can be very corrupting. You know, as as money comes into a sport, and records aren't just bragging rights, but could be a career changing. Then you do have to create some structure just to keep the opportunities, you know, reasonably level for people. The idea of a governing body really scares me. Like, I just, I don't know that that's a great idea. I think that the guys at Fastest Known Time have done a, a really good job of vetting, you know, the, the rules. And that's, again, that's a 20 plus year process that, you know, those have all come together. And this is your friend Buzz? Yeah, Buzz Burrell and Peter Backwin started that four years ago, I believe. Oh, but you said you were having conversations with him 20 years ago. So the website only right. came into play four years ago, but you and he and, and this group has have been having these conversations for a very long time. Absolutely. So what what is fastest? I, I'm aware of it. A lot of people have sent me their website. I've, I've gone to look at it, but I, I really am not super familiar with it is it just a website that hosts the rules and it's a set of rules that runners can abide by or, or what what is that they actually do a credit you know record attempts so if you do a run and you think you successfully did the fastest time on that route you can send in your gps track you know get it verified by them and then you are listed as the fastest known time and then they separate three main categories, supported, self-supported, and unsupported. And the fully supported is, just as it sounds, pretty much any aids. You know, still, you have to travel every foot of the route under your own power. But outside of that, you can have whatever support works best for you. And then unsupported is the opposite of that. You have no support. You carry all your food. So you you can resupply with natural water that you find. That's essentially it. And then self-supported. I mean, self-supported, I guess, is you know where it gets trickier 
with the rules and they have that broken down. The main difference with runners is they allow caching of supplies for their self-supported records. So you could, but you, you, I mean, you do have to cache it yourself, but you could drive the route, you know, supply your drops. And then when you run it, no one else is, it's just you, but you're picking up food that you have stashed along the way. And that's not really a done thing. Yeah. I mean, bikes can travel faster. We can carry more stuff. And so the routes are longer. Yeah. We can get we to can resupply get points town. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some, you know, natural differences between the sports that, you know, make it logical to have, uh, you know, some differences in the rules, but like in terms of the, th- the breakdown of the three categories, I think it's, that's just very smart and very logical. And then the other issue, cause people have, you know, suggested, why don't we, you know, just add bikes to that, but the nature of bike packing doesn't really lend itself to having a fully supported category. Because, you know, the word packing is in, yeah. you know, the name, <laughs> like it's, you carry your own, that's the, the one component, core component is you are carrying the stuff that you need along the way. I just think it would be sad to lose, you know, that part of it. And it's interesting, like when I first did the Great Divide, the precedent that I had for doing routes was basically race across America. You know, that was the most prominent, you know, point A to point B as fast as you can, you know, to get across it. So I planned on doing it fully supported. I was sponsored by Chevy trucks. So I had this whole thing set up and seven days before I left, I just thought, you know, I'm setting a precedent here. You know, how I do this matters. And I just thought to do it, like I was incredibly fortunate to be sponsored by Chevy trucks and could have, you know, they supply, you know, have them supply a vehicle for me to do this. And that didn't seem very equal to me. Like it was bad on, on a few levels. One, we shouldn't be adding mandatory cars to a bike event. Like that seemed bad from an environmental standpoint. So I, I decided to do it self-supported and just pulled everything together right at the end, which was logistically fairly challenging. Although, like, I'd been doing it long enough, like, I knew how to put together a kit. Like, I had all that dialed in. I just didn't have any trail beta. You know, I didn't know where water was. I didn't know the hours. Like, I think on the first or second night, uh, I got to a, a town right after the store closed. So I had to wait. And I was out of food, so I had to wait six hours for it to open again. And so, I mean, I made a few, you know, of those mistakes that, you know, now... I'm sure everybody starts with a GPS file that has all that information. And a cell phone where they can Google where their next gas station is or whatever. Yeah, that cell phones have definitely, they've made it much more approachable for the masses. For a while, uh, the Tour Divide banned cell phones. They went super low tech for a few years. I didn't know that. When was that? Yeah, I wasn't a fan of that simply because don't make a rule you can't enforce and nobody wants to be the the bike police. I just yeah. I think as absolute few rules as possible and trust people to be honorable, I think is a better way to go. And of course with technology, it's just it's inevitable. It's like there's you can't fight it. You know, you can argue it's a very different world 
today with a you know spot device with a you know a red button a smartphone in another year or two or I'm not sure what the timeline is but Tesla's got that satellite based you know smartphone so people will be able to live stream you know their ride the whole way oh wow there you go there you go Sofian you can live stream your whole race <laughs> yeah so things you know have changed and they're going to continue to change I think what you're telling me is I could do a live podcast with racers as they're going. Sure could. They wouldn't even have to stop pedaling. That's where my mind goes. I'm going to be the live bike pack racing podcaster. I'm just kidding. Actually, that sounds kind of fun, but it isn't. I've never, uh, never thought of that before. You're right. Technology is inevitable. As I was learning a little bit more about you, I was studying your 1999 Tour Divide, or I guess at that time it was the Great Divide mountain bike route that you did. And um, I thought it was interesting that, at least according to this article, there was two different media crews that were there documenting uh, that attempt. Is that true? No, one media crew. Okay. I don't know what the second one would be. They said National Geographics and um, some other company. I can't remember what it was. Oh, no. They were just trying to do their production for National Geographic. Oh, that was just an avenue that they were trying to sell it to. I don't think that ever happened. I don't think it was ever on National Geographic Explorer that I recall. I want to find it. That was that was going to be one of my questions if that's still out there because I've never heard of it and I would I'd love to see that. That would be really cool. You don't even know if it exists. Um, I'm sure I have a DVD somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to see it. <laughs> You know, it's just interesting because I've been running with this narrative a little bit that, you know, as the sport grows, money is going to come in, sponsorships are going to come in, camera crews are going to come in, media is going to come in. But then I'm learning about you. And in 1999, when you did it for the first time, you were sponsored by Chevy. You had a media crew out there. And I think, you know, not to, I'm not trying to call you out, but what I'm saying is that you, um, you see that the desire to capture these events, to tell these stories has been there since the very beginning. And, and also sponsorships and money has kind of been there um, since the beginning. And so I think it's not a matter of if these things are going to play a part. It's more like, you know, how do we do it correctly, right? And I'd be interested to get your thoughts on maybe going back to you know, the original spirit of the Tour Divide and self-supported racing and, and what, you know, what is the basic ethos that we're trying to capture when we do these events that we don't, what is the thing that we don't want to lose, you know? Well, I would say, you know, what I don't want to lose most and what I learned from that first ride, if you had asked me beforehand, I would have said, oh, you know, having a, a documentary film crew It'll probably be, you know, maybe a little bit irritating, but it won't change anything substantial. Like, you know, it's just fly on the wall. It won't affect the overall ride at all. And I found the opposite to be true. I think the main reason that I ride still and rode then is when you've been out in the, especially in the wild, but when you travel a route, you also travel at emotional distance. Like you go through something and you feel, it's very empowering for me. You feel totally self-reliant and you have kind of a huge sense of self-accomplishment 
when you're alone that you don't have when you're with other people. And I felt that I didn't get that. Like I've had that feeling in Alaska. I didn't have it going across Australia because that was, you know, with other people. And so I think you lose that when you have a film crew. And I think you don't, by their nature, they are there. So they, to say that they don't change the experience is disingenuous. They just do. Now, we can accept that for the betterment of getting media, for having a show about it. And there's a certain line, like, you know, we should. It is good to tell this story, and it is good to share the sport with as many people as possible. And I guess the line is, it's like, all right, like, how much of that experience do we give up? I would never do a film crew again, just because for me personally it changed my experience, you know, in a negative way. You know, it was not as enjoyable or as self-satisfying as I would have hoped. I think Sofian, you know, made some really good comments when he was on your podcast. Film crews don't make you faster. Anytime you talk to somebody, like, it slows you down for all the obvious reasons. You know, in a, in a micro scale, I think Sofian said... You know, anytime I've seen a camera, I never slow down. And that's totally true. Like you, if you're on the verge of walking up a steep hill and there's a camera on you, you're going to ride that, you know, 10 times out of 10. But in the, in the bigger picture, those don't add up enough. And the, the hassles of dealing with a, a film crew are, you know, going to slow you down. But again, they're, a, you know, a, a, a safety net, you know, they are a, you know, a comfort blanket that, you know when you have to make a decision. Like sometimes you have to decide, do I go out in, into the storm or, you know, do I take this risk? You know, should I do it or should I play conservative? If you know that the absolute worst thing that can happen to you is, well, I can just bail and hop in the film crew truck, that's a big deal. Like that changes, that changes the events. It changes some events greatly. I mean, obviously the more remote it is, like I've had some very dangerous experiences in Alaska where I'm trying to think like nobody, none of the top people ever had a film crew on one of the Idita sports because nobody would have put up with that because it's such an, such an extreme obvious advantage. You know, you can't go out and because dealing with the elements is a huge component of that race and having a crew with you would just be, it would be laughably inappropriate. I remember the Europeans would usually bring a film crew, but they were back of the Packers. Uh, so nobody, you know, nobody really said anything because they, they didn't matter to the, to, to the real race. But it would have been a massive uproar if a top athlete had had a film crew in any way. And then so you, it is, you know, a sliding scale of, okay, when is it appropriate? You know, when is it not? I've heard people have issues with the, like the a number of people have done the Cocapelli trail and you know have had film crews and you know it didn't create the firestorm that you know some of these other things yeah. have had all fess up i've been one of the people that have that that's been one of my question marks and a source of personal confusion for me because yeah i mean you had you know Kurt and Caitlin that went and got an FKT on the Cocapelli and 
recorded it and Lachlan Morton did the same thing. Sponsored writer has a film crew goes and does it and nobody cares. You know, you don't hear a peep about it. I went and read every single comment on bikepacking.com to see if anybody had anything negative to say. And of course not, but then, you know, Lale does AZT and, and there seems to be an, another set of rules or whatever. And it, it wasn't the first time that she's been called into that. And so as a, as an outsider, well, and I'm not an outsider, but you know, I'm not a bike pack racer. That's what I'm not. I like to go bike packing, but I don't do a lot of racing and I'm not super familiar with the rules for an outsider like that. Looking in, that's a little bit confusing, you know? Yeah. So the, the main reason is those routes don't have a route director. So there are no rules for their for those routes. The White Rim and the Cocapelli specifically. And the reason there's no route director is the Forest Service won't let them have a grand depart. So there's nobody in charge of them. And then, you know, if there isn't going to be... Uh, like, I didn't follow the sport for, you know, about 10 years there. And uh, Mike Kuriak, you know, did the same thing. You know, he kind of checked out from the sport because of he didn't want to deal with the the politics of it, I think. So there was no bikepacking police, you know, to to say anything. And if there's nobody who is there to object, then no one says anything. And if the route doesn't have any rented printed rules, like who's to say that you can't do it any way you want? So that's where the disorganization of the sport, you know, is uh, for sure confusing to people, I'm sure. Uh, and legitimately so. It's great to have a totally free-spirited sport until you get into some of these details. And then it's like, oh, we don't have any rules. Like, how do we handle this? Yeah, that's, I think, the question that a lot of people are asking or should be asking. Well, actually, a lot of people are just telling everybody exactly how they should be doing it. But I'd rather be listening on learning how we could possibly do it better. Well, I was just going to say, well, you know, and that's too bad because it seems totally appropriate to have a conversation about the rules of the sport right now, because it has kind of hit that tipping point of it's so popular that, you know, it really kind of matters now, you know, back when it was only a handful of people, you know, it just didn't present the issues. But now that there's money involved and uh, just a lot of people new to the sport who don't know the, the roots of it, and just you know, with changes in technology, I think it's fair to question the way things have been done and look at it moving forward. Yeah, I think that is a question. And it, it's like you said, we, um, you know, first we didn't have spot trackers. At first, we didn't have cell phones. I just learned from you that Tour Divide pushed back on the cell phones showing, you know, this this struggle between, you know, what is solo self-supported and is the cell phone support? And obviously it is. I mean, a cell phone, a GPS tracker, a breadcrumb that you can follow, all these things are offering a level of support. They're making it easier to access bikepacking and probably one of the large reasons why we're seeing it grow and, and explode the way it is. And so now the question is, is media crews, you know, that is at the core. I don't hear anyone really arguing about any, anything else. I mean, some people are worried about the money. I get that. I'm worried about the money, but it, it really is this core issue of media crew that is at the core of everybody's, you know, disagreement. And I think one thing that has changed just in terms of that, it always used to be a media crew meant like a documentary crew, like 
the guys who covered me were trying to sell this to National Geographic Explorer, I think. But now a media crew is kind of your own personal company that, you know, it's your, it's for your social media, your Instagram, you know, you put together a movie, a YouTube, you know, channel or whatever it, it has. So it's, I think that dynamic has also fundamentally changed. You know, it's not a third party, it's the riders in business with their media crew. And I think that changes the dynamic also. So what is the solution there? If there is, I mean, there obviously is a solution right now. I mean, you adhere to the race rules. I mean, if we're talking about Lael, she broke the rules. You know, I talked to her. She's fine with that. No problem. She broke the rules. It doesn't count as an official time. But I think, I think what people would like to do, what I would like to do is, is find a way to acknowledge that effort and, and not just put an asterisk on it. But like you were saying, there can be different kinds of FKTs. And when we were talking about the different kinds, it was, you know, self-supported and unsupported FKTs. And is a media crew a supported FKT? Is that, is that the same thing as, you know, stashing food or, you know, a car uh, uh, to get away in or whatever? I mean, where do we put those people, if anywhere? Or do we just say that doesn't, that doesn't count? You know, if you go back to you know, the original in, intent and like, and this comes from, from climbing. I think we could learn, you know, some good lessons there in that when somebody does something, we acknowledge what they did. It's good to acknowledge the people who came before you and what they did. And it doesn't have to be quite so concrete as Grand Depart record or an ITT record with an asterisk and supported, self-supported. I mean, all those things can be a part of it. And I think Layla has even mentioned this and I agree with her on it. Like, why don't we just judge the attempt as a whole? And I think it's worth considering doing that where it's not as concrete. So you're saying like, look at each effort as an individual. I mean, especially if it's an individual time trial, just accept it for what it is. Right. I mean, you you alluded to it earlier. I mean, the whole spirit of bikepacking is is to go out and do it under your own power. And it doesn't matter if you have paneers or or how you choose to approach it as long as you're self-supported. So are you are you saying that maybe just look at it and accept that as part of her process, but doesn't have to be the defining factor? I think that's one way to go. You know, the other way is, you know, to go fastest known time and just have absolute concrete rules. I mean, I like the storytelling, you know, of the sport. I like the adventure of it. When it comes to course records, a lot of times a course record is set because of favorable weather or, you know, dirt conditions. And some of these routes, you know, the routes change, you know, every year or two because of fires or rerouting. Routes on dirt are not apples to apples as much as, you know, we would like to think that they are. And I think there's almost an overimportance that is put on, you know, the course records. Winning a race is an achievement. Like you beat whoever else showed up to that event. Setting a record might be a huge achievement or like I've set records purely because I had great conditions, took advantage of those. I never put a whole lot of, you know, stock into them just because of that. Yeah, I mean I I agree with that. I 
I don't like all the vitriol that goes on once you get to like the pointy end and everybody's talking shit about everybody else. And yeah, it seems like we're overinflating the importance of of that stuff. And, you know, since Lael's the person that kind of started all this or it all started with Lael, I mean, but even if you look at her as an example, like she doesn't care. You know, I talked to her and she told me straight up that um, whether they put an asterisk next to her name or whatever, that you know, that's not her personal motivation. And it speaks to what you were saying about, you know, being able to uh, approach something like this, I hope, in any manner that we want to. And if if she wants to use that experience to inspire other people and bring other people into the sport, I think that there should be a, an opportunity for her to do that. When you get into, you know, who did the fastest time, um, that's where people start getting really concerned. You know, I think if people held to the, you know, the kind of the personal ethos of if you're going to claim, you know, a fastest time on a route, that original principle of if you're going to claim a record, it has to be at least as hard as the person's whose record you're beating. I think it's just a good concept to follow. Like, it doesn't have to be a concrete rule. People should... Uh, I just think folks would be better off if they did it because they they thought it was the right thing to do. Like uh, Marc Andre Leclerc in, in the uh, the Alpinist, he climbed the way that he climbed, which was super hardcore and, and minimalist. He did it because that's what mattered to him. He did it for his. You know, I don't think there was you know there wasn't specific climbing rules that said, hey, you can't do this route without a or with a spot device, but his, you know, just personal feeling was it's not the same accomplishment if, you know, you, you don't do it alone. As we were talking, I remembered a, a quote that I read. It was actually when you finished the Tour Divide or Great Divide in 1999, you said, my future in the sport really depends on how long I can take it mentally. You have to do this for the passion. No amount of money is enough for this kind of difficulty. I thought that was really interesting back in 1999 that you had that perspective of that. And I've talked about this on the podcast as, as the subject of money has come up. I don't think money can be the sole motivator to push your body to, you know, a, a FKT or winning a race on, you know, 2,500 miles of the Tour Divide or 800 miles of AZT. It, it does seem like there needs to be a really internal motivator that, that is going to always outweigh money. Do you still think that, you know, this, this 24 years later? Or, or do you think money is something that we should be more worried about? I think it was a huge mistake for me to take a film crew on the Great Divide. And that was, I mean, I don't remember my motivations then, but I would guess it was financial. Like I'm trying to, you know, keep this live, you know, keep it going as a, as a job. And like promotion is like good, like that increases your exposure, which, you know, should lead to, you know, more sponsors. But I don't think it was good, you know, for the sport. Like that was a, that was a mistake, you know, and I, I should have been more of a, a purist, you know, from that standpoint. And I didn't know it was going to be the experience that it was. You know, I didn't know that a film crew would tangibly change it, would make it a 
you know, a, a negative experience. Yeah, it was a total mistake. Like for me personally, it is, yeah, it's not doing it totally solo. I laugh when I watch a TV thing and, you know, they'll, you know, the narrator will say, when we come back from commercial, we'll find out if Joe has survived, you know, this dangerous encounter. And I'm thinking, well, I know he survived because the camera guy's right there filming the whole thing. And I want to know about, I used to be a magazine photographer. It's like, I want to know the story about the person who got that shot of that person who's, you know, supposedly doing something, you know, amazing because the camera guy's carrying a bunch of gear too. But I think, you know, things evolve and with technology, it's not as though if we don't have media crews that the sport will die in darkness. I mean, we have 4K GoPros and 4K iPhones. I think you can self-produce a pretty good program, you know, or maybe have, you know, minimal, you know, like on something like the, the Great Divide, maybe film crews can only meet athletes in towns or something. Or, you know, there's different compromises you can do. Like, you know, if you have a film crew that covers the events rather than one athlete, so that, you know, the, the impact is more spread evenly among people. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because I think, you know, it, it would depend on the, the athlete or the racer because some people are not going to want to see anybody and that's going to be a distraction and unwanted and, and other people would really thrive on that. I, I was just talking on an, an episode I did recently. I had Dennis and Kuya on and we had media. It was on my own uh, race, the East Texas Showdown, and we had media crew out there and one of them couldn't care less about the media crew. They just were in the zone and focused on what they needed to do. And the other one was lonely at night and hoping that he would run into a media crew and, and looking for that emotional boost. And when he didn't get it, it was kind of like a letdown. And so, it, you know, even if you just have like media crew across the board, I don't know, it's tricky. Like I, I am media crew. I have covered races. I go out on course and I take pictures of people. And, you know, my thing is like, I don't talk to you. I just sit there and take a picture. And if you want to stop and talk, you can. But, you know, I'm not there to really impact hopefully the race, even though I agree with what you're saying. If I'm sitting at the top of a hill taking a picture, I know for a fact that people are going to push a little bit harder. They want they want to get a picture on their bike. They want they don't want to get a picture pushing their bike, you know. And so it it is it is a thing. Yeah, I thought that Ezra and Lauren did a really good job talking about this on the Bikepack Racing podcast. And Ezra's, you know, story of having his brother come out and just kind of view the race like he just wanted to be a part of it and Ezra didn't see that as, you know, being in any way supportive at first, but then, you know, upon reflection, he thought, you know, you know, I get, you know, that is, you know, a safety net that maybe others didn't have. And I just think that that was just a really honest view of the subject that for folks who, who haven't experienced it, they see it as, well, if they're not helping you pedal, like what difference does it, does it make? But once you've experienced it, it's just different. I mean, it's just, it's not level to, like some people, you know, would get a huge benefit, mental benefit from it, possibly others, it would be a hindrance, but it isn't nothing. Like you just, you can't say it has no effect because just existing changes the dynamic in the environment. No, I, I agree. And I, 
I think that I think most people can acknowledge uh, that it, it's going to have some impact. I think we might disagree on the level of impact, and I think that that at the core of it is just because we're different people, and so different people are going to have different interactions with with a media crew, and so I think it can be complicated to understand you know, exactly where, where the line is there. But the one thing you can't deny about a media crew, uh, regardless of any kind of emotional support is that there's a fucking vehicle there (laughs) that can take you off course if things go South. And Sofian talked about it, you know, on the mountain pass in 2019, uh, tour divide when, you know, he was like, well, if there's a media crew there, you know, maybe I push on because I know that there's a car there or someone could come and get me if, and that, that's something that I we just, regardless of emotional support and if you look forward to it or you don't look forward to it, if there is a vehicle right there that can take you off course and it allows you to push yourself a little bit further, that I can't imagine doesn't have some kind of uh, impact on your your mental state and your desire and willingness to push things maybe harder than than you would if it wasn't there, you know? Yes, well, the question is, what do we do now? If you had your way, I mean, you've been involved in the conversations surrounding solo self-supported bikepack racing, the rules that pertain to it. We're, we're at a crossroads, I think, a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of dialogue and discussion happening and, and people care. People want answers. They want to know what is right. They want to know what is wrong. And if you if you could have your way, what what would the path forward look like if you have an idea? In my ideal world, everyone would be a little bit more like Marc-Andre Leclerc and they would do it the pure way just because it makes them happy, you know, to do it that way. But in the real world, I like, you know, the, the fastest known time, you know, rules. Uh, they've really worked them out. They work for the top athletes like Killian Jornet is the most media-exposed endurance athlete on Earth. And he doesn't have a problem with the media rules, uh, which are super restrictive on fastest known time. So if if the most media-savvy and exposed endurance athlete of all time is okay with media restrictions, and I talked to the fastest known time guys about that and they have said that Killian has always been compliant, has never raised, you know, an, an issue with it. It's they've never had a, a struggle with him or and with those rules. And so if it if it works for those folks, like I don't I don't see how why it wouldn't work for bikepacking too. Can I ask you? I'm I'm curious because you know Buzz and I forgot the other gentleman's name over at FKT, but you've known him and had a relationship with him for 20 years. You know, you're a very respected and important part of the bikepacking community. Have you thought about taking up this mantle and maybe partnering with Buzz to? Uh, we couldn't adopt their FKT rules exactly as you've outlined, but you know, I I personally like the idea of you know having a set of rules and not even that everybody has to adhere to them. But what if it was like? this FKT was complete completed adhering to XYZ rules, you know, and, and it was a standard that everybody could acknowledge and, and maybe get behind. Yeah. And that's kind of the climbing or it's, you know, look, it's, I mean, this is a terrible example, but like professional boxing, like there's what five different championship, you know, belts and they all have their, 
different rules. I don't know. Like somebody at some point will probably like if you just instead of looking at today, like try and look at okay, where where's this going to be in five years? It seems like the sport would probably have the way it's going. It's going to have to need rules at some point. And but like nobody's in charge. The closest anyone is to being in charge are the route directors, because they make the rules for the grand departs. I do think it's a, a valid question for people to say, well, okay, if you're going to have a, a grand depart race, you can make rules, but why do those same rules apply to an ITT? You know, kind of Lale's position on the Arizona Trail. And I think that is, is fair to question. And maybe it's something along the lines of, Grand departs, you know, because they're doing all the work and those route directors are doing a ton of work. It's thankless unless something goes wrong. And then, you know, the, the entire world you know, wants to tell you how you should have done your job or your role. Yeah. And in poor John's defense, all he did was adhere to the own, his own rules that were already in place before the thing ever started. So yeah, that was yes. very unfortunate, uh, the way that, that we handled that. And it's worth mentioning again, we mentioned it before, but yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, we shouldn't do that anymore. But so I think, you know, a possible compromise is grand departs do their, uh, events as they want and ITTs would fall under say something like the FKT rules. So if you're going to do it totally individually, you have a uniform set of rules to abide by. And events can, I mean, the only question I have with that is grand departs are kind of this underground, semi-organized, but don't really exist, uh, loose association, uh, all of which could be shut down by the Forest Service at any time. There's no security in those maintaining that status. So I think that's kind of a weird place for the for the sport to be in. It's you know the rules are essentially set by this very tenuous organization of events that could disappear tomorrow if the Forest Service thought they were like if they get too big, like they get shut down. It only works if they stay small. And so how do you grow the sport with that? You know, I don't, that's a good question. I, I host my own bikepacking race here in Texas and because public land is such a scarce resource here and I, I do represent the bikepacking community, it was really important to me that I got, you know, the permits through the Forest Service and, you know, the communities bought in and that that's my personal goal is to to have it all above board, to have the community bought in to have the forest service be like, wow, these guys are, you know, they, they adhere to leave no trace principles. They're good outdoors people. They respect the land. They're doing things the right way, you know, and that is a, a scary thing that you bring up about some of these events. Um, we are on public land and so we're captive by whatever they say we can and, and can't do. That's one of the questions that I, I work through is how can we make sure that, that bikepacking and bikepack racing is is done in a way that outsiders can look at and be like, okay, this is a good thing. You know, this is a good group of people that are respecting the land that they're traveling through. And um, that's my hope. For sure. Um, and, it, you know, it'd be great if the community could, you know, discuss uh, the merits of some of these things and, you know, keep it to the the merits of it. 
regardless of uh, what your thoughts are, like there's no right or w- wrong way to do this. And I don't have an answer of what we, you know, should do. That's up to the younger folks who are, you know, leading the next generation of the sport. Oh no, not the younger folks. We're in trouble. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Could you ever imagine, or did you ever imagine in 1999 or, you know, at the first tour divide race that, you know, we'd see this much growth in bikepacking. I mean, you've seen mountain biking grow. You've seen all that. So did you, did you project this or does this surprise you? I always knew that it could appeal to the masses. I always felt that. I don't think that I ever thought that it actually would, but I thought if people could just get out there and get exposed to it, that they would love it. It's a universal, you're out in nature and you're exploring. And I think that's our most primal instinct. What about the aspect of, uh, I think the uh, solo aspect, the self-supported aspect of it is a key component because with how easy everything is and how automized all these things are, we got cars and electricity. I mean, it's just, everything is so easy. We don't get very many opportunities in life to really push ourselves and to rely on ourselves and then prove to ourselves that we're capable of doing something very hard, you know? Yes. And that's, you know, again, I think is our, you know, the caveman, cavewoman brain, you know, coming out for that survival, battling the elements is uh, very primal. So getting away from rules a little bit, tell me about what it is about you that attracts you to the hardest events that you can find, whether it was across Missouri or Australia or the Great Divide, you've, or man, I did a trail and I mean, it's just, you've always been in my mind, the way I'm looking at it, you seek out the hardest, most difficult, most challenging efforts and and that's what you go for. Yeah, I think at its, at its root, I've always been an all or nothing person. And I think that even in in terms of overcoming obstacles or challenges, you know, take a, like say a 40 degree rainy day, that's just uncomfortable. And it's just not, I mean, I live in Seattle, so I'm used to it, but there's no challenge there. Like, you know, it's as draining for me as it is, you know, for someone, you know, totally new to the sport who doesn't even compete. But the difference is when you take that temperature down to 30 below, well, now I'm energized, you know, and I get intrinsic, you know, energy from that. It's kind of the introvert, extrovert, you know, difference. It's what gives you, it's not necessarily how you act. It's where you get your energy. And I get my energy from those difficult situations where like, it's just a dopamine pump that just fuels me. Uh, Whatever it gets, the harder it is, the more I turn that into a a challenge and the more more exciting it is. It really is. When did you learn that about yourself? You always pushed yourself like that since a young age or did you kind of figure this out later on? No, I I ran in high school, but kind of did the more is better. But, you know, in those days of road running, like there was no adventure, you know, we couldn't really explore um, I just uh, also just always wanted to explore when I was younger too. I remember, you know, being a little kid and I was mad that the whole planet had been, you know, discovered, kind of irritated with that. Like I wanted to be a polar explorer, or a Mawson. And then I just, I just got super lucky with the birth of mountain biking. 
you know, it came along timed perfectly for me. So I uh, was able to tack on to that, the wave of that sport. And then of course that just naturally led to going further, you know, and further it starts small. And then, you know, one person says they can ride, you know, X distance. And then, well, the only challenge is to go, you got to go for like, why go less? The next milestone is to, to do double that. So then the next question is, do you know what it is about you, not only that drives you to those types of events, but what has allowed you to excel so much throughout your career and your life? Training, mental, you know, what can you point to that, that you think was, was your key to success or one of them or many of them? <laughs> well, I think when you do these sports, you get asked, is it more mental or physical? And I bristle at that, you know, because it's, it's both like the brain is an organ and you have to manage and train, you know, that organ as well. But I think that the people who excel and Lael uh, introduced herself to me last summer and I complimented her on the fact that I thought she was really unique and amazing in the joy that she gets from the sport. You can take the, you know, I do well because I'm a masochist and I can suffer more than, you know, anyone else. Well, the people who excel are the ones who get that baseline up to a super high level before it is even suffering to them. Like they're just finding in enjoyment from it. And that it always looks like it comes natural, and I'm sure it does to a lot of people, but you can also train that. Back in the day, before we had power meters, I would judge when I was ready to do a, a big event by more my mental side. Like I'd hop on my trainer, you know, and stare at a blank wall. And, you know, like a lot of times, you can be sick of yourself in 30 minutes, you know, you know just waiting for it to end. But if you can train yourself to be okay with that for hours, then you're in a whole different place mentally. And you need to be in that place to, to excel in these long distance events. You have to be able to, you know, uh, generate that intrinsic dopamine and the most mundane things have to be exciting for you. It's kind of dialing down that the things that can matter or that, you know, get your engine going. And time, you know, goes faster when you're in that frame of mind too. And that matters a lot when you're doing an event that, you know, lasts multiple days or, you know, a couple of weeks now too. How you pass time has a huge impact on how well you will finish. Yeah. I've talked about this before, but it does seem like that the happier you can be on your bike, the more you can be enjoying it. It seems like there's some equation to not only speed, but just, uh, yeah, staying on your bike, staying happy, staying motivated and, and out there. You know, you don't see Lael or Sofian with a sad face ever. You know, you know, Sofian's singing exactly. and telling jokes and he's just having a great time. And I, I Lael, I've tried to pin Lael on this question before when I've had her on the podcast, not this last time, but before I'm like, you know, be honest with me. Like, is there just some like, you know, demon inside of you that just like wants to go fast and super competitive and all this stuff. And she's like, no, I just, I like riding my bike. It's just fun. You know, just really, uh, I, I think that's just, I think she just really loves it, which is a, a good place to start from. I'd be curious to get any tips you have or any thoughts you have on longevity 
uh, as it pertains specifically to bikepacking and ultra endurance cycling, you're still an active cyclist and, um, you're not as young as you were in 1999. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm 42. So I'm, I'm like, I'm looking at the second half of half of my life now. I'm like, all right, how do I keep this engine going? I'm very fortunate in that. Like I've had a number of crashes and injuries, but you know, nothing that is hurting me too badly these days. It's like at age, I turn 57 in a couple of weeks. I'm doing pretty, like, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. My hips are good. Doctor said I won't need knee replacements or, you know, shouldn't. So, I mean, I have some neck issues and aches and pains, but it could be, it could be a lot worse. So I'm very happy and thankful that my body has uh, stayed well. At the same time, like I, I've been having since I started, um, I had a bad, I got hit by a car a number of years ago and I couldn't ride for a few years and started back up, I guess, two years ago. And one thing I, I noticed, I, I'm not handling heat like I did when I was younger. And I haven't completely figured out what's going on with that medically yet, but that's frustrating. You know, I would like to be my younger self and do the same things that I uh, have always wanted to do, but you have to realize your limitations. You don't recover quite as fast. And I think it's just being super honest with yourself about not biting off, you know, more than you're capable of when you take on a project. Yeah. I could see that being challenging knowing because, you know, as you do hard things, you develop the mental, like you have that mental strength, right? Like you're like, oh, I know I can do that. I know I can do this. But it, it sounds like, you know, you have to be more mindful of that and be like, okay, can I still do that? You know, uh, what is pushing it too far now look like? Yes, exactly. So mentally, like in in terms of athletics and, and training and bikepacking, mentally, I'm pretty much the same. Like I don't, I don't feel any difference. And so you do have to be a little more honest with yourself about, you might feel the same way mentally, but you can't do the same things. And if you try, you're going to, you know, possibly get yourself into an issue. So I think that's just being accommodating to that is what, you know, I'm trying to work on. Um, <laughs> and it's like, you know, I do, you know, look at the future and think, okay, I'm going great at 56, but what about 66? Like, where does that, is there a line where things just change drastically? Hal Russell was still out there. He w he's a great example of, do, I mean, he did the tour divide six times, I think, after he turned 57 or something. So, And there was just a, uh, a gentleman who set the over 70 marathon record. Oh, wow. And it was crazy fast. 245 or, under, or three hours. Oh, my gosh. For real? Yeah. Like, anyone would be in dreamland if they could run that fast at, you know, even 60. But at 70, that's phenomenal. But I think that, you know, this generation is kind of is changing those, you know, boundaries of how long athletes can go. I remember, you know, thinking, you know, that past age 30, you know, you, you need to start thinking about moving on from, you know, sport. And at 40, you like you're totally washed up. And now that just isn't, that isn't true at all. Especially not in endurance sports, right? I mean, when Twi quick twitch, fast explosive movements, muscular strength, like 
you know, I think we lose some of these things, but in endurance sports, when so much of it is your mind and your mind is very strong and it's over the course of weeks, it seems like it's an equalizer for a lot, you know, whether it's gender, age, if you're a sponsored rider or a guy that, you know, has just been training in his hometown. That's one thing I like about bikepack racing is that it does seem to be an equalizer where, yeah. And, and that's kind of the point, right, is, is how can we make these events a fair playing field for everybody involved and everybody has has like an equal shot, which is one of the things that we value of the sport and, and hopefully we need to, to keep that. I kind of have to run and go get my daughter, but I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast and, and talking about all this stuff. I'm on your side. I, I'd like to see us as a community do a better job of just communicating uh, about these things and understand that we're still a relatively young sport and there's a lot that we can still learn and we'll continue to grow. And I think the most important thing is that, that we're able to talk about it and figure out what the best and the right way forward is. Um, and if we can't do that, I don't, I don't see us getting to a really good and healthy resolution. So I do appreciate you sharing, sharing your thoughts and being willing to, um, to just talk about it, man. Yeah. It seems like, you know, it, at some point there, it would be valuable to have like a, a round table of uh, a few folks and a moderator just dis- discussing these, discussing these, you know, issues. Cause I think there are a lot of folks who are new to the sport and just genuinely, you know, just don't know all of the dynamics. And I think it could be very educational and I think it would be uh, productive and helpful. One of my favorite quotes that was said on the podcast is uh, from Carrie state that owns a, uh, K-Light. And he said, uh, information is, or no, he said, knowledge is light. And I recommend you carry as much of it as you can. <laughs> and, uh, you know, especially from a bike packer's perspective, I, I love that sentiment and we should be gobbling up as much information as we can. And, and with that, we're able to make better decisions and, and, you know, and, and also like understand where other people are coming from and stuff. So I think around, I've, I've had that same idea about a, a round table and, um, having, I, I don't know there, you could put all kinds of people in there, but it does feel like there needs to be some organization on the rules specifically. I don't want to see a governing body, but in order to prevent these types of things from happening in the future and in order to prevent another governing body or a governing body from coming in and saying, you know, this is the way we do it. It does seem like it would be prudent for, I mean, what if we, I don't know, I don't want to write off a bunch of names, but I would put you at that round table for sure. But let's start with you and add some more people. Yeah. Have a quorum and kind of figure these things out. I think that would be wonderful. And it would, it would, prevent some of the the negativity that we've seen, you know? Yeah, I think the sports, you know, I think the sport needs it. And I think that would be probably the most approachable way to um, educate, you know, a, a number of folks. Because, I mean, the, you know, the Instagram and the, you know, Twitter information is, method is not working very well. <laughs> no, I, 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 I legitimately, I mean, I got dragged into it. I saw my name popping up and I, I just stopped following it because, I mean, I have my own mental health. I don't, I don't want to hear, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, I don't want to hear people talking about, about John and Lael and just sh- throwing shit all over the internet. And, and you don't even know these people, you know, that's, that was my, one of my biggest gripes with the Lael situation is like, 
before she had even like finished all, you know, all this, it was already written. Everybody already decided where they stood on that. And, it, and, and we didn't even get to hear what Lael thought and, and her perspective. And we didn't hear from John other than, you know, a couple like Instagram posts. And it was a bummer to see, but I do think, I hope that we learn. I, I do hope that we learn from this. And I hope that as we go forward, we can prioritize talking and listening over, you know, shouting um, at each other over the internet. It, I think we've seen that it's just not productive. And uh, so hopefully we can avoid that in the future. That's one thing we can definitely do better. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, we've learned that lesson. I doubt that that is true. We seem to be at a stage in humanity where we just keep repeating um, our large mistakes. But <clears throat> all you can do is try. I know. I'm trying to be optimistic. <laughs> if people just really, the core of bikepacking is go out and have an adventure and do it in a way that makes you happy. And if everyone did that, you know, it would be a much better place. Whatever your sense of adventure is, do that. Go bikepacking by yourself. You know, you don't have to pay attention to anybody else's rules. Just do it your way. It's about traveling by bike and, you know, traveling that physical and you know, emotional distance and getting away from it. Physical and emotional distance. Yeah. Go on a journey and see where you come out the other side. Thank you, John. I hate to run, but my daughter, well, I got to go pick her up. Sounds good. Part of being a dad. Hey, man, it was great to talk to you. It was a true honor. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I hope we get to do it again. I'd love to talk to you again. And I'd love to do an episode and really focus on like the early stages of bikepacking, you know, and fill in some of that history for people. I'd love to talk to you. And there's there's a whole laundry list of people that I think it would be really neat to capture some of those like or origin stories. And I, I think they're important. I would really uh, like to do that because the sport is at a, a level of popularity now where it's a lot of athletes are getting at least internet famous. And I think there's, I mean, I, I was very fortunate and I got my, you know, 15 minutes, you know, 20 years ago, but there are a lot of other core people who didn't really like the Mike Kuriaks of the world. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for the sport happening because I'm not sure like it probably would, you know, things happen no matter what, but it wouldn't have happened the way it did without his guiding influence in the early days. He really made a difference. I'd love to talk to him, talk to you and him and anyone else. You can put together a list. Sounds good. All right, John, good chatting with you and look forward to the next time. Thank you, Patrick. Talk soon. All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed hearing from a pillar in our community, somebody who's been around the block probably more than once and more than twice. This guy knows what he's talking about, and um, I appreciate him taking the time to come on the episode and and share his thoughts. And um, I do look forward to meeting up with him again. And I want to, yeah, like I said, I want to talk about some other stuff besides just the rules uh, but the rules are important, and I'm glad that we were able to do that. Now, as I was falling asleep last night, I had an idea, and I'm going to throw it out there, and we're just going to see what happens. But 
how cool would it be if next week's episode was from a person or persons that was currently on the Tour Divide? It would even be cool if they just called in while they were riding and we could chat for a little while. So here's my call out. If you are currently on the Tour Divide, and you don't have to be riding, maybe you're holed up in a hotel because you broke your leg or your bike is broken and you're waiting to get it fixed or you're sleeping in someone's basement because you lost your way and now you don't know if you'll ever get out. I mean, whatever, wherever you're at, if you are currently a dot on the Tour Divide and you would like to be a guest on the podcast, shoot me a DM on Instagram or uh, you can email me. Email is the best way because there's a lot of Instagram messages, but I understand y'all are out there racing. And uh, so just contact me anyway. You can try Facebook and try Instagram. My email is bikes at bikesordeath.com. But shoot me a message and, and let me know. And we're just going to see what happens. Uh, I'm going fishing. And we're going to see if I can get one on the line. Maybe we can get a couple. But I think it would be really neat if we just kept the Tour Divide theme going and actually talk to some people who are in the thick of it, get some uh, live reports on the ground. So that's your call to action. And if you are a listener and you know somebody who is out there racing that might want to do it, maybe you can help deliver the message to them and we can connect in that way. All right. Well, I think that's it for today's episode. I don't know about y'all, but I am absolutely glued to the screen. I'm a Sofian fan, as I'm sure many of y'all are, and it is so much fun to see him out there pushing the pace and, again, watching his Instagram and, and listening to his stories, listening to his songs, and appreciating the fact that that dude is just out there having a great damn time riding his damn bike. So until next week, you know what to do. Take a page from my friend Sofian and go ride your damn bike. It was the middle of the night. You grabbed your knife and you held it tight. The sounds of beasts kept you awake. The sounds they made kept you afraid. In the morning, you packed your bike. Memories forgotten from the previous night. Faster than ever before. Was it your imagination or merely folklore? Fear turned into strength as you pushed further. Every pedal stroke stronger and firmer. Your bike feels weightless, your legs aren't tired. You think to yourself, just a few more miles. Bikes. Oh, death. Bikes. Oh, death.